You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. My philosophy was not just black power. There was a all power to all the people uh, philosophy, and I still exists and stand on the principles of being what I call a revolutionary humanist. Black Panther Party co-founder Bobby Seale. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Fifty-five years ago, African Americans were making historic progress in their fight for civil rights, but much work remained to be done. That year, 1966, Bobby Seale and his longtime friend Huey Newton co-founded a new organization that they dubbed the Black Panther Party. Now, in 1968, Seal made a name for himself during anti-Vietnam War protests outside the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. It was not Seal's first run-in with the law and would not be his last. But after a brief prison sentence, Seal in the early 1970s wrote a book about the Black Panther Party called Seize the Time. Now, after that book was out of print for many years, it was republished in 1991. And that's when I met him. So here now from 1991, Bobby Seale. How does a book that's that's 20 years old that was written in times very different from these today hold up? How is it still timely today? Wow, maybe we can ask Spike Lee that. He wants to do a film on it. Sure. <laughs> I've talked to Spike Lee in the last two or three months. He's very interested in doing a film on it. Uh, it holds up because of the profound, infamous uh, notoriety of the one, the Black Panther Party, of which I co-founded with Huey Newton, of which I was one of the most celebrated uh, defendants in the Great Chicago 8 conspiracy trial, the 8th defendant of the Great Chicago 7 conspiracy <laughs> trial. Um, it holds up because of the posture that we took of Huey B. becoming a symbol of resistance to uh, uh, racism in all its facets and forms in America. Uh, because of the profound, broad, grassroots community organizing that went, went on because of J. Edgar Hoover and others who did everything in the world they could to terrorize us and smash us, but yet we weathered what they put to us. And I think that the history is just uh, the most recent, uh, just recent contemporary 60s history is in itself, you know, something that I find that in my 30 or 40 college lectures a year at colleges, students want to know how to get a hold of this book. I says, hey, i got to put this thing back in print for you guys. Do you find that a lot of people now that maybe hated the Black Panther Party 20 years ago, now that all the, you know, all the books that have come out about J. Edgar Hoover and his excesses, Nixon, his excesses, all the things that, that they may have thought were on the right side and you were on the wrong side, maybe things... Have their, have their positions softened? Those who have that information uh, uh, would take time now to look, listen, and, and take another view. Uh, two, um, when you start talking about COINTELPRO document publications that reflect upon that, people realize that a lot of the things that the Black Panther Party was accused of was really provocateur agents, you know, that were sent into the Black Panther Party by J. Edgar and others. And so, uh, true. Others, particularly when I lecture at colleges, I mean, there's numerous colleges I go to that some of the old professors or faculty are kind of skeptical. When I'm able to wrap and have that face-to-face relationship, 
and really rap and talk about what's in seized the time, what my life was about. When people find out I was a jazz drummer as a young man, uh, when I found out that I was a stand-up comedian, mm -hmm. when they found out I worked in the Gemini Missile Project uh, for two and a half years, uh, that I was a journeyman uh, aircraft structure repairman for high-performance aircraft, when they found out I'm a down-home expert barbecue cook, <laughs> and that I was raised uh, by my mother, you know, Sharon Sherlock, like doing others as you would have them doing to you. My father, your right to be nice and the right to defend yourself if somebody bothers you or hurts you. When they see it in context of how I evolved and stumbled in to 1960s civil rights top politics, um, they begin to understand, and they say, wow, I didn't know that. When they see me recite the Declaration of Independence in the United States of America, and I'll paraphrase it to any peoples, and understand that my philosophy was not just black power, that it was a all power to all the people uh, philosophy, and that I still exist and stand on the principles of being a, what I call a revolutionary humanist. You know, so when they realize that, then they get a chance to uh, put seize the time in context and see where I was coming from. You know, uh, political trials. I won every political trial that was ever put against me. Uh, we had one of the best legal framework teams in the country. Even when some of them find out that the NAACP put up the money <laughs> to do my appeal, which I won against Judge Jesus Hoffman in the conspiracy trial. I mean, when people find that out, and that we also work with SCLC for the Poor People's March, uh, Dr. Reverend Albanath had requested that, that we were not really outside of the system nor outside of the civil rights movement. We were, in fact, an integral part of it. It's just that we had received probably a uh, um, what we call a stereotyping via the politicians and some of the media quoting the politicians and the police departments quoting them in certain ways that you know they, they didn't really understand of what we did I mean free breakfast with children programs I mean at one point we were feeding 250,000 children across the country in 45 different chapters and branches that I had organized free breakfast every morning in the poor and low-income black communities and Hispanic communities and in one community where we had young white kids. Some white lady thought that, oh, these are only for the black guys. It's nothing for the white kids, too. It's all power to all the people. And that at another point, uh, through our 45 chapters and branches with the preventative medical health care clinics, uh, we instituted a sickle cell anemia testing program. And the Black Panther Party, in a three-year period, we tested over a million and a half black folks with sickle cell anemia, and we didn't have one iota of government funds. We did all of this through grassroots community organizing, face-to-face -face relationship with businessmen, doctors, other people who supported, some Hollywood supporters, black and white, etc. But, you know, I don't remember reading any articles about that in the paper. Well, they were there here and there, but... J. Edgar Hoover was not going to tell you that I was a fisherman and an expert barbecue cook. <laughs> <laughs> well, have the, have the, has the passage of time changed your views on anything? Has softened your viewpoint on anything? I'm, I, I'm pretty steadfast uh, in terms of what I really believe, other than what I was stereotyped to believe. You see? And when I say power to people, I truly mean that we need to creatively evolve more a balance of power between the people and the political institutions. Some of our uh, economic practice needs to be, uh, in this country, needs to be more community control 
of economic frameworks, particularly on the grassroots level, that deal with retailing and producing services and goods. Not all of it, but some of it. Uh, some of those profits could sustain and, you know, get away from the need to deal with tax monies and sustain a whole lot of programs in the community. That's a form of power to the people. Uh, when I say that I think we need to dismantle apartheid and a people's revolution needs to go down, yes, that's in effect what's happened. It just may not have happened like exactly the way other revolutions happen. Yes. Uh, some people assume that I was a state-controlled command economy socialist. I never was. I was a community-controlled economist. I've never believed in command economy socialism. I've been arguing against, arguing against uh, Russia's state-controlled command economy type socialism since my early days. I never thought it would work in an overdeveloped, fast-paced, computerized, scientific, technological social order that's intertwined with said democratic human rights enumerated in the Constitution of the United States of America. Now, this is what I was about. I understood my revolution and my concept of revolution simply meant the need to revolve more political and economic power back into the hands of the people, of the people, by the people, and for the people, as trite as it may sound. That's what I really believe in. So as it goes, and once I get a chance to rap, talk, explain to people, explain to students, and sure, I know how to integrate the intellectual with the emotional in a great speech or speaking to college students to get them motivated or stimulated, etc. And sometimes people hear the voice and the tone but essentially, where I'm coming from is something that uh, really goes back to what my mother said. Share and share alike and doing to others as you'd have them doing to you. After this short break, details you may have never heard about how Huey Newton died. Now back to my 1991 interview with Bobby Seale. Why do you think that... that 20 years after your book was first published, there is still such a disparity between black America and white America. Why is the black unemployment rate so much higher? Why is the black homicide rate among young men so much higher? Why is it still so different? Actually, what's happened here is that racism has perpetuated itself. Uh, really prior to the 60s, we were talking about overt racism. And then I guess in the latter part of the 70s and the early 80s, it got more covert in another indirect kind of sense, you know. And, of course, there were some arguments concerning affirmative action and all these other things, and let's return back with the old Reaganite Bush concepts of trying to really turn back the clock and making false issues of so-called reverse racism. We don't control the political institutions in the sense and the fashion. We don't control the economic frameworks. To be a real racist, one must control those those economic and political institutions, and then in turn deliberately, willfully, and maliciously use them as a means to discriminate against other ethnic and or religious groups and or females, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so what we're getting at here is that racism, somebody says, is there a resurgence of racism? I tell them, it's never left here. It was covert. It never left, you know? Uh, in terms of the poor and low-income black community, Hispanics, and young whites kill each other, too. We just don't have a greater emphasis on our, uh, the, the, the emphasis is, is really on the blacks. But that's another level. That's a part of that history of racism. But I do a dual-aided criticism here. I do criticize the black community for particular things that they should be paying attention to. At the same time, I'm not going to uh, let... Uh, 
the right-wing racist power structure of America and others who perpetuate that kind of philosophy. I'm not letting them off the hook because this is a result of what they're about. But at the same time, when it comes to solving the problem, I think that the black community really has to deal with the rampant criminality in the black community in a more direct way. And uh, not only through the legal and legislative frameworks, et cetera, but a more direct way. And there's a lot of programmatic things that has to be done other than just running around with some right-wing conservative philosophy or Bush-Reagan administration philosophy or lock him up and throw the key away because that's the basis of his philosophy, his administrative philosophy at least. So why is has to do with one, I mean, I could just off the top of my head talk about the 65% of all the black families in the country being run by a single female in the home. I was raised with a father who taught me to be a carpenter, a hunter, etc., so I'm getting at the, the, the difference between right and wrong and a mother. And that all fold, fold together in a family unit, me, my brother, and my sister. Uh, my sons were raised the same way. You know, my son's in his 20-year-old's in his third year of college. My 26-year-old, I finally convinced him to go to community college. He's going into his second semester. But they don't involve themselves in criminality. My youngest daughter, 13, she wants to be an environmental scientist. I guess that's because she was raised up around mom and pop, you know. But that family unit, that family framework, laying down principles, having some goal objectives of man and a woman, black male and female, must begin to evolve some uh, goal objectives, a unit of ideas, because one of the greatest manifestations of disunity in the black community rests between the black male and the black female. Anybody who's old enough to remember this, hey, Bobby Seale, yeah, what's he up to now? Mm-hmm. I say he's running for Congress. And I just kind of sit there, he's running for Congress? As if this is something bizarre. I ran for mayor of Oakland in 1973, 42.5% of the vote. I ran for state legislature in 1968. So that was part of my agenda, even in the Black Panther Party, political electoral community politics, political electoral community power, power to the people. I mean, you know, that's what's happening. I had decided I didn't think I I used to say that I have no intention of ever running for political office again. But Congressman Gray surprised me. I met him several times in Philadelphia. I live in the district, et cetera. So I decided to say, wait a minute. Here's an opportunity here not only to win a seat, but I can take two or 300 young students and involve them in my campaign and teach them some of the fine particulars of great, really truly grassroots community, electoral community organizing, you know, and even get some co-op credits through the college, you know, at Temple University. I work at Temple University as a community liaison and a minority recruiter. But uh, that's an opportunity to do that, you know, because I think we need more young activists. We need more environmentalists. We need more women's rights advocates. We need more homeless uh, programmers and uh, numerous activists and social change. We need them elected into these legislative frameworks. I really truly feel in all my analysis and all my uh, higher education levels and all my experience out there in the streets, that the most important political institutionalized function in America is, in fact, the legislative bodies from the local level to the federal level. And if we can get more active in social change, people's environmentalists in there, I think that we can begin to evolve something that makes some human sense. I, I was moved, I guess, by the by the, the the sadness in your voice when you talked about the death of Huey Newton, mm-hmm. uh, that did not come in some heroic battle with police, that did not come in mm-hmm. some True. just cause that 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 would further the cause of people to the power. He died with a drug dealer. Drug dealer actually killed him. 
He owed the drug dealer hundred some odd dollars. We've investigated. Former party members literally investigated this. We did this. We talked and found and got a hold of um, druggies and drug abusers who knew about the whole situation. Who these are the ones who wouldn't even talk to the police, of course. And um, we find we we've investigated. We we couldn't find out, you know. But it doesn't take away Huey's uh, contribution he made, regardless of that. I try to explain that to people, you know. That that happened, and it was almost like an inadvertent thing, the way it was said. The guy was saying, well, you know, I could kill you. And Huey, I think, had turned around and said, oh, no. Huey sort of had his back to the guy. Now you want to kill the great Huey P. Newton. I guess you want to get publicity, and you want to go down in history. And Huey turned around, and this guy had drawn some Saturday Night Special and shot Huey three inches from his jaw and then shot him twice more in the head and ran, threw the pistol away, told his girlfriend later when he came on he did it. She went to the police. She came and told the police that my boyfriend did the killing. His other friend who was with him didn't even know he was going to shoot him. He thought it was stupid that he did it. Showed the police where they found him, where the gun was, and they picked him up later, and that's how they got And it, you can see what was happening here. One of those emotional-type, inadvertent attitudes about a young 22-year-old drug pusher who did something just off the spur of the moment. Huey died, and Huey had a Ph.D. in metaphysical philosophy. It's just, Huey was the type of dude that always hung around his grassroots communities, whether it was on drugs or whether they, whatever, if they was drinking wine or whether they was having a community meeting. He he never left his real grassroots in a sense of, he, I mean, one of the people said that. He said, well, all I got to say is Brother Huey, regardless of where everybody else is, he might have had a Ph.D., he said, but Brother always hung around us. He never left his roots. And it was one of, I mean, it was one of those things about Huey, and I always remember that about him. He always liked the uh, hardcore, tough people, you know, even as a young man, but he always liked to philosophize to him. <laughs> but I always, he always said I could do it better than him because I knew how to break down the theories. You miss him? Yeah, I miss Huey. I miss being around Huey, you know, uh, for a period there. Then I got used to it, you know, but... Been good to see Huey, rap with Huey, you know, and uh, Huey say some strange thing, etc., and spout some political theory or something, etc., and then somebody said, "Well, I don't know what you mean," and Huey would say, "Uh, t- t- break it down to him, Bobby, break it down," and he knew I would break it right down so everybody can understand. He said, "That's what I mean. That's what I'm talking about." So, so I was six years older than Huey. Huey always admired all the trades and skills and professions I had. And he says, he says, I don't see how you do that. How do you communicate with people like that? That ability, what they call integrating the intellectual with the emotional and communicating with people. So we had that reciprocal kind of friendship, particularly in the era prior to and through the Black Panther Party when we created that organization. Bobby Seale is 84 now, and for the past few years he's been seeking to produce a screenplay based on his book, Seize the Time. And you can find easy Amazon links to Bobby Seale's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're on our website, check out my 1992 interview with Rosa Parks. He was very youthful, and I was surprised that such a young person was the pastor of that church. And uh, 
Montgomery, and he was quite friendly, and he was very eloquent. And my 1993 conversation with Carl T. Rowan. I had the last official appointment with President Kennedy before he went to Dallas. He said to me, you know, a kind of miasma of hatred is sweeping across the land these days. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything. It's been almost 15 years now since the untimely death of crocodile hunter Steve Irwin. But his legacy lives on. You'll hear my 2007 interview with his widow, Terry Irwin. He didn't look at an animal and say, that could rip my head off, or gee, that's the most venomous snake on earth. He appreciated and admired its beauty and its adaptability and just genuinely loved it. And I never saw him scared of anything. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. 